0: part three the blazing of the trail chapters thirty five and thirty six of the blaze trail by stuart edward white this libravox recording is in the public domain recording by tom weiss chapter thirty five five years passed in that time thorpe had succeeded in cutting a hundred million feet of pine the money received for this had all been turned back into the company's funds from a single camp of twenty-five men with ten horses and a short haul of half a mile the concern had increased to six large well-equipped communities of eighty to a hundred men apiece using nearly two hundred horses and hauling as far as eight or nine miles near the port stood a mammoth sawmill capable of taking care of twenty-two million feet a year about which a lumber town had sprung up lake schooners lay in a long row during the summer months while busy loaders passed the planks from one to the other into the deep holds besides its original holding the company had acquired about a hundred and fifty million more back near the headwaters of tributaries to the Osawinamaki. in the spring and early summer months the drive was a wonderful affair during the four years in which the morrison and daly company shared the stream with thorpe the two firms lived in complete amity and understanding Northrop had played his card skilfully the older capitalists had withdrawn suit afterwards they kept scrupulously within their rights and saw to it that no more careless openings were left for thorpe's shrewdness they were keen enough business men but had made the mistake common enough to establish power of underrating the strength of an apparently insignificant opponent once they understood thorpe's capacity that young man had no more chance to catch them napping and as the younger man on his side never attempted to overstep his own rights, the interests of the rival firms rarely clashed. As to the few disputes that did arise, Thorpe found Mr. Daly singularly anxious to please. In the desire was no friendliness, however. Thorpe was watchful for treachery, and could hardly believe the affair finished when, at the end of the fourth year, the MD sold out the remainder of its pine to a firm from Manistee and transferred its operations to another stream a few miles east, where it had acquired more considerable holdings. They're altogether too confounded anxious to help us on that freight, Wallace, said Thorpe, wrinkling his brow uneasily. I don't like it. It isn't natural. No, laughed Wallace. Neither is it natural for a dog to draw a sled. But he does it, when he has to. They're afraid of you, Harry, that's all. Thorpe shook his head, but had to acknowledge that he could evidence no grounds for his mistrust. The conversation took place at Camp One, which was celebrated in three states. Thorpe had set out to gather around him a band of good woodsmen, except on a pinch he would employ no others. "'I don't care if I get in only two thousand feet this winter, and if a boy does that,' he answered Shearer's expostulations, "'it's got to be a good boy.' the result of this policy began to show even in the second year. Men were a little proud to say that they had put in a winter at Thorpe's One. Those who had worked there during the first year were loyally enthusiastic over their boss's grit and resourcefulness, their camp's order, their cook's good grub. As they were authorities, others perforce had to accept the dictum. There grew a desire among the better class to see what Thorpe's One might be like in the autumn Harry had more applicants than he knew what to do with. Eighteen of the old men returned. He took them all, but when it came to distribution three found themselves assigned to one or the other of the new camps, and quietly the rumour gained that these three had shown the least willing spirit during the previous winter. The other fifteen were sober to the industry which their importance as veterans might have impaired. Tim Shearer was foreman of Camp One, Scotty Parsons was drafted from the veterans to take charge of 2. Thorpe engaged two men known to Tim to boss 3 and 4, but in selecting the push for 5 he displayed most strikingly his keen appreciation of a man's relation to his environment. He sought out John Radway and induced him to accept the commission. "You can do it, John," said he, "and I know it. I want you to try, and if you don't make her go, I'll call it nobody's fault but my own." "'I don't see how you dare risk it after that cast-branch deal, Mr. Thorpe,' replied Radway almost brokenly. "'But I would like to tackle it. I'm dead sick of loafing. Sometimes it seems like I die if I don't get out in the woods again.' "'We'll call it a deal, then,' answered Thorpe. The result proved his sagacity. Radway was one of the best foremen in the outfit. He got more out of his men, he rose better to emergencies, and he accomplished more with the same resources than any of the others, excepting Tim Shearer. As long as the work was done for someone else he was capable and efficient. Only when he was called upon to demand on his own account did the paralyzing shyness affect him. But the one feature that did more to attract the very best element among woodsmen, and so make possible the practice of Thorpe's theory of success, was camp one the men's accommodations at the other five were no different and but little better than those in a thousand other typical lumber camps of both peninsulas they slept in box-like bunks filled with hay or straw over which blankets were spread they sat on a narrow hard bench or on the floor they read by the dim light of a lamp fastened against the big cross beam they warmed themselves at a huge iron stove in the centre of the room around which suspended wires and poles offered space for the drying of socks. They washed their clothes when the mood struck them. It was warm and comparatively clean, but it was dark without ornament, cheerless. The lumberjack never expects anything different. In fact, if he were pampered to the extent of ordinary comforts, he would be apt at once to conclude himself indispensable, whereupon he would become worthless thorpe however spent a little money not much and transformed camp one every bunk was provided with a tick which the men could fill with hay balsam or hemlock as suited them cheap but attractive curtains on wires at once brightened the room and shut each man's bedroom from the main hall the deacon seat remained but was supplemented by a half-dozen simple and comfortable chairs in the centre of the room stood a big round table over which glowed two hanging lamps the table was littered with papers and magazines home life was still further suggested by a canary bird in a gilt cage a sleepy cat and two pots of red geraniums thorpe had further imported a washerwoman who dwelt in a separate little cabin under the hill she washed the men's belongings at twenty-five cents a week which amount thorpe deducted from each man's wages whether he had the washing done or not this encouraged cleanliness phil scrubbed out every day while the men were in the woods such was thorpe's famous camp one in the days of its splendor old woodsmen will still tell you about it with a longing reminiscent glimmer in the corners of their eyes as they recall its glories and the men who worked in it to have put in a winter in camp one was the mark of a master and the ambition of every raw recruit to the forest. Probably Thorpe's name is remembered today more on account of the intrepid, skillful, loyal men his strange genius gathered about it than for the Herculean feat of having carved a great fortune from the wilderness in but five years' time. But Camp One was a privilege. A man entered it only having proved himself. He remained in it only as long as his efficiency deserved the honor." its members were invariably recruited from one of the other four camps, never from applicants who had not been in Thorpe's employ. A raw man was sent to Scotty or Jack Highland or Radway or Curley. There he was given a job if he happened to suit, and men were needed. By and by, perhaps, when a member of Camp One fell sick or was given his time, Tim Sherer would send word to one of the other five that he needed an axman or a sawyer or a loader or teamster, as the case might be. The best man in the other camps was sent up. So Shearer was foreman of a picked crew. Probably no finer body of men was ever gathered at one camp. In them one could study at his best the American pioneer. It was said at that time that you had never seen logging done as it should be until you visited Thorpe's camp one on the of these men thorpe demanded one thing success he tried never to ask of them anything he did not believe to be thoroughly possible but he expected always that in some manner by hook or crook they would carry the affair through no matter how good the excuse it was never accepted accidents would happen there as elsewhere a way to arrive in spite of them always exists if only a man is willing to use his wits unflagging energy, and time. Bad luck is a reality, but much of what is called bad luck is nothing but a want of careful foresight, and Thorpe could better afford to be harsh occasionally to the genuine for the sake of eliminating the false. If a man failed, he left camp one. The procedure was very simple. Thorpe never explained his reasons, even to Shearer. Ask Tom to step in a moment, he requested of the latter. "'Tom,' he said to that individual, "'I think I can use you better at four. Report to Curly there.' And, strangely enough, few even of these proud and independent men ever asked for their time or preferred to quit rather than to work up again to the glories of their prize camp. For while new recruits were never accepted at Camp One, neither was a man ever discharged there. He was merely transferred to one of the other foremen.' It is necessary to be thus minute in order that the reader may understand exactly the class of men Thorpe had about his immediate person. Some of them had the reputation of being the hardest citizens in three states, others were mild as turtle doves. They were all pioneers. They had the independence, the unabashed eye, the insubordination even, of the man who has drawn his intellectual and moral nourishment at the breast of a wild nature they were afraid of nothing alive from no one were he chore-boy or president would they take a single word with the exception always of tim shearer and thorpe the former they respected because in their picturesque guild he was a master craftsman the latter they adored and quoted and fought for in distant saloons because he represented to them their own ideal What they would be if freed from the heavy jives of vice and executive incapacity that weighed them down. And they were loyal. It was a point of honor with them to stay until the last dog was hung. He who deserted in the hour of need was not only a renegade, but a fool, for he thus earned a magnificent licking if ever he ran up against a member of the fighting forty. A band of soldiers they were, ready to attempt anything their commander ordered devoted enthusiastically admiring and it must be confessed they were also somewhat on the order of a band of pirates marquette thought so each spring after the drive when hat tilted they surged swearing and shouting down to denny hogan's saloon denny had to buy new fixtures when they went away but it was worth it proud it was no name for it boast the fame of camp one spread abroad over the land and was believed into about twenty percent of the anecdotes detailed of it, which was near enough the actual truth. Anecdotes disbelieved, the class of men from it would have given it a reputation. The latter was varied enough in truth. Some people thought Camp One must be a sort of hellhole of roaring fighting devils. Others sighed and made rapid calculations of the number of logs they could put in, if only they could get hold of help like that. Thorpe himself, of course, made his headquarters at Camp One. Thence he visited at least once a week all the other camps, inspecting the minutest details not only of the work, but of the everyday life. For this purpose he maintained a light box sleigh and pair of bays, though often when the snow became deep he was forced to snowshoes. During the five years he had never crossed the Straits of Mackinac. The rupture with his sister had made repugnant to him all the southern country. He preferred to remain in the woods. All winter long he was more than busy at his logging. Summers he spent at the mill. Occasionally he visited Marquette, but always on business. He became used to seeing only the rough faces of men. The vision of softer graces and beauties, lost its distinctness before this strong hardy northland whose gentler moods were like that of velvet over iron or like its own summer leaves veiling the eternal darkness of the pines he was happy because he was too busy to be anything else the insistent need of success which he had created for himself absorbed all other sentiments he demanded it of others rigorously he could do no less than demand it of himself it had practically become one of his tenets of belief. The chief end of any man, as he saw it, was to do well and successfully what his life found ready. Anything to further this foreordained activity was good, anything else was bad. These thoughts aided by a disposition naturally fervent and single in purpose, hereditarily ascetic and conscientious, for his mother was of old New England stock gave to him in the course of six years' striving a sort of daily and familiar religion to which he conformed his life. Success, success, success. Nothing could be of more importance. Its attainment argued a man's efficiency in the scheme of things, his worthy fulfillment of the end for which a divine providence had placed him on earth. Anything that interfered with it, personal comfort, inclination, affection, desire, Love of ease, individual liking, was bad. Luckily for Thorpe's peace of mind, his habit of looking on men as things helped him keep to this attitude of mind. His lumbermen were tools, good, sharp, efficient tools to be sure, but only because he had made them so. Their loyalty aroused in his breast no pride nor gratitude. He expected loyalty. He would have discharged at once a man who did not show it the same with zeal, intelligence, effort. They were the things he took for granted. As for the admiration and affection which the Fighting Forty displayed for him personally, he gave not a thought to it, and the men knew it and loved him the more from the fact. Thorpe cared for just three people, and none of them happened to clash with his machine. They were Wallace Carpenter, Little Phil, and Injun Charlie. Wallace for reasons already explained at length was always personally agreeable to thorpe latterly since the erection of the mill he had developed unexpected acumen in the disposal of the season's cut to wholesale dealers in chicago nothing could have been better for the firm thereafter he was often in the woods both for pleasure and to get his partner's ideas on what the firm would have to offer the entire responsibility at the city end of the business was in his hands Injun Charlie continued to hunt and trap in the country round about. Between him and Thorpe had grown a friendship the more solid in that its increase had been mysteriously without outward cause. Once or twice a month the lumberman would snowshoe down to the little cabin at the forks. Entering he would nod briefly and seat himself on a cracker-box. "'How do, Charlie?' said he. "'How do?' replied Charlie. They filled pipes and smoked. At rare intervals, one of them made a remark tersely. em 'em three beavers last week," remarked Charlie. "Good haul," commented Thorpe. "Or, I saw a mink track by the big boulder," offered Thorpe. "Hm," responded Charlie in a long-drawn falsetto whine. Yet somehow the men came to know each other better and better, and each felt that in an emergency he could depend on the other to the uttermost, in spite of the difference in race as for phil he was like some strange shy animal retaining all its wild instincts but led by affection to become domestic he drew the water cut the wood none better in the evening he played atrociously his violin none worse bending his great white brow forward with the wolf glare in his eyes swaying his shoulders with a fierce delight in the subtle dissonances the swaggering exactitude of time the vulgar rendition of the horrible tunes he played, and often he went into the forest and gazed wondering through his liquid poet's eyes at occult things. Above all, he worshipped Thorpe, and in turn the lumberman accorded him a good-natured affection. He was as indispensable to Camp One as the Beagles. And the Beagles were most indispensable. No one could have got along without them. In the course of events and natural selection they had increased to eleven. At night they slept in the men's camp underneath or very near the stove. By daylight in the morning they were clamoring at the door. Never had they caught a hare. Never for a moment did their hopes sink. The men used sometimes to amuse themselves by refusing the requested exit. The little dogs agonized. They leaped and yelped falling over each other like a tangle of angleworms then finally when the door at last flung wide they precipitated themselves eagerly and silently through the opening a few moments later a single yelp rose in the direction of the swamp the band took up the cry from then until dark the glade was musical with baying. at supper-time they returned straggling their expression pleased six inches of red tongue hanging from the corners of their mouths ravenously ready for supper strangely enough the big white hares never left the swamp perhaps the same one was never chased two days in succession or it is possible that the quarry enjoyed the harmless game as much as did the little dogs once only while the snow lasted was a hunt abandoned for a few days wallace carpenter announced his intention of joining forces with the diminutive hounds it's a shame so it is doggies he laughed at the tried pack we'll get one tomorrow. so he took his shotgun to the swamp and after a half an hour's wait succeeded in killing the hare from that moment he was the hero of those ecstasized canines they tangled about him everywhere he hardly dared take a step for fear of crushing one of the open faces and expectant pleading eyes looking up at him it grew to be a nuisance wallace always claimed his trip was considerably shortened because he could not get away from his admirers. End of chapter 35 Chapter 36 Financially, the company was rated high, and yet was heavily in debt. The condition of affairs by no means constitutes an anomaly in the lumbering business. The profits of the first five years had been immediately reinvested in the business. Thorpe, with the foresight that had originally led him into this new country saw farther than the instant's gain he intended to establish in a few years more a big plant which would be returning benefices in proportion not only to the capital originally invested but also in ratio to the energy time and genius he had himself expended it was not the affair of a moment it was not the affair of half measures of timidity thorpe knew that he could play safely cutting a few millions a year expanding cautiously by this method he would arrive but only after a long period or he could do as many other firms have done start on borrowed money in the latter case he had only one thing to fear and that was fire every cent and many times over of his obligations would be represented in the state of raw material all he had to do was cut it out by the very means which the yearly profits of his business would enable him to purchase for the moment he owed a great deal without the shadow of a doubt mere industry would clear his debt and leave him with substantial acquisitions created practically from nothing but his own abilities the money obtained from his mortgages was a tool which he picked up an instant used to fashion one of his own and laid aside every autumn the company found itself suddenly in easy circumstances. At any moment that Thorpe had chosen to be content with the progress made, he could have, so to speak, declared dividends with his partner. Instead of undertaking more improvements, for part of which he borrowed some money, he could have divided the profits of a season's cut. But this he was not yet ready to do. He had established five more camps, He had acquired over a hundred and fifty million more of timber lying contiguous to his own. He had built and equipped a modern high-efficiency mill. He had constructed a harbor breakwater and the necessary booms. He had bought a tug, built a boarding house. All this cost money. He wished now to construct a logging railroad. Then he promised himself and Wallace that they would be ready to commence paying operations the logging railroad was just then beginning to gain recognition a few miles of track a locomotive and a number of cars consisting uniquely of wheels and bunks or crossbeams on which to chain the logs and a fairly well graded right-of-way comprised the outfit its use obviated the necessity of driving the river always an expensive operation often too the decking at the skidways could be dispensed with and the sleigh-halls if not entirely superseded for the remote districts were entirely so in the country for a half mile on either side of the track and in any case were greatly shortened there obtained too the additional advantage of being able to cut summer and winter alike. thus the plant once established logging by railroad was not only easier but cheaper of late years it has come into almost universal use in big jobs and wherever the nature of the country will permit. The old-fashioned, picturesque ice-road sleigh haul will last as long as Northwood's lumbering, even in the railroad districts, but the locomotive now does the heavy work. With the capital to be obtained from the following winter's product, Thorpe hoped to be able to establish a branch which should run from a point some two miles behind Camp One to a dump a short distance above the mill. For this he had made all the estimates and even the preliminary survey. He was therefore the more grievously disappointed when Wallace Carpenter made it impossible for him to do so. He was sitting in the mill office one day about the middle of July. Herrick, the engineer, had just been in. He could not keep the engine in order, although Thorpe knew that it could be done. "'I sat up nights with her,' said Herrick, "'and she's no go.' I think I can fix her when my head gets all right. I got headachy lately, and somehow that last lot of Babbitt metal didn't seem to act just right. Thorpe looked out the window, tapping his desk slowly with the end of a lead pencil. Collins, he said to the bookkeeper, without raising his voice or altering his position, make out Herrick's time. The man stood there astonished. But I had hard luck, sir, he expostulated. Should go all right now, I think. Thorpe, turned and looked at him. Harry, he said not unkindly, this is the second time this summer the mill has had to close early on account of that engine. We have supplied you with everything you asked for. If you can't do it we shall have to get a man who can. But I had, began the man once more. I ask every man to succeed in what I give him to do, interrupted Thorpe. If he has a headache he must break up or quit. If his Babbitt doesn't act just right he must doctor it up or get some more, even if he has to steal it. If he has hard luck, he must sit up nights to better it. It's none of my concern how hard or how easy a time a man has in doing what I tell him to do. I expect him to do it. If I have to do all a man's thinking for him, I may as well hire Swedes and be done with it. I have too many details to attend to already, without being bothered about excuses.' "'The man stood puzzling over this logic. "'I ain't got any other job,' he ventured. "'You can go to piling on the docks,' replied Thorpe, "'if you want to.' Thorpe was thus explicit because he rather liked Herrick. It was hard for him to discharge the man peremptorily, and he proved the need of justifying himself in his own eyes. Now he sat back idly in the clean-painted little room with the big square desk and the three chairs. Through the door he could see Collins perched on a high stool before the shelf-like desk. From the open window came the clear musical note of the circular saw, the fresh aromatic smell of new lumber, the bracing air from Superior sparkling in the offing. He felt tired. In rare moments such as these, when the muscles of his striving relaxed, his mind turned to the past. Old sorrows rose before him and looked at him with their sad eyes the sorrows that had helped to make him what he was. He wondered where his sister was. She would be twenty-two years old now. A tenderness haunting, tearful, invaded his heart. He suffered. At such moments the hard shell of his rough woods lights seemed to rend apart. He longed with a great longing for sympathy, for love, for the softer influences that cradle even warriors between the clangors of the battles. The outer door beyond the cage behind which Collins and his shelf-desk were placed flew open. Thorpe heard a brief greeting, and Wallace Carpenter stood before him. "'Why, Wallace, I didn't know you were coming,' began Thorpe, and stopped. The boy, usually so fresh and happily buoyant, looked ten years older. Wrinkles had gathered between his eyes. "'Why, what's the matter?' cried Thorpe. He rose swiftly and shut the door into the outer office. Wallace, seated himself mechanically everything everything he said in despair i've been a fool i've been blind so bitter was his tone that thorpe was startled the lumberman sat down on the other side of the desk that'll do wallace he said sharply tell me briefly what is the matter i've been speculating burst out the boy ah said his partner at first i bought only dividend-paying stocks outright then I bought for a rise, but still outright. Then I get in with a fellow who claimed to know all about it. I bought on a margin. There came a slump. I met the margins because I am sure there will be a rally, but now all my fortune is in this thing. I'm going to be penniless. I'll lose it all. Ah, said Thorpe, and the name of Carpenter is so old established, so honorable, cried the unhappy boy, and my sister. Easy, warned Thorpe being penniless isn't the worst thing that can happen to a man no but i am in debt went on the boy more calmly i have given notes when they come due i'm a goner how much asked thorpe laconically thirty thousand dollars well you have that amount in this firm what do you mean if you want it you can have it wallace considered a moment that would leave me without a cent he replied but it would save your commercial honor. Harry, cried Wallace suddenly, can't this firm go on my note for thirty thousand more? Its credit is good, and that amount would save my margins. You are partner, replied Thorpe. Your signature is as good as mine in this firm. But you know I wouldn't do it without your consent, replied Wallace reproachfully. Oh, Harry, cried the boy, when you needed the amount, I let you have it. Thorpe smiled you know you can have it if it's to be had, Wallace. I wasn't hesitating on that account. I was merely trying to figure out where we can raise such a sum of sixty thousand dollars. We haven't got it. But you'll never have to pay it, assured Wallace eagerly. If I can save my margins, I'll be all right. A man has to figure on paying whatever he puts his signature to, asserted Thorpe. I can give you our note payable at the end of a the year. Then I'll hustle in enough timber to make up the amount. It means we don't get our railroad, that's all. I knew you'd help me out. Now it's all right, said Wallace with a relieved air. Thorpe shook his head. He was already trying to figure out how to increase his cut to thirty million feet. I'll do it, he muttered to himself after Wallace had gone out to visit the mill. I've been demanding success of others for a good many years. Now I'll demand it of myself. End of part three. Recording by Tom Weiss tom's audiobooks com